Oh, man. I hear this new teacher threw some kid out a window in Chicago. Oh, man. Ran him over with his car. No, no, that's not what happened. The guy got fired because he went berserk in class. He picked up a chair and threw... Oh. My fifth class today. I'm a little out of shape. Thank God you're seniors. You'll have mercy on me, I hope. Welcome back. To the percolated media, Stephen King Retrospective. Welcome back. Continuing their journey through the film-adapted works of author Stephen King, the boys will spend the next few weeks looking at the three movies in the Sometimes They Come Back franchise. Don't let them upset you, Mr. Norman. They're idiots. Will Adam have a better time with these movies than he did with the Trucks adaptations? Is this what happens to tough guys like you, huh? Will Matt make it through without letting his grumpy Goudreau persona come out? Why don't you throw something at me while I'm looking, huh? Throw it to my face! And will Garrett find a gem in the adaptations of this, his favorite night shift story? Woo! Shooting Jimbo. The answers to all these questions and more, coming up, courtesy of percolated media. Why don't we just get this over with? Uh... Sometimes they come back for more, or sometimes they come back three, or Frozen, released on video in 1998, and this was directed by Daniel Zelik Burke. There's no highlight on his name, so obviously he did not go on to do much. We are back to review more King We're going through Night Shift, and I gotta say, boys, when I was outlining exactly how many movies we're going to be doing, I looked and I knew there was a second Sometimes They Come Back movie. I had no idea there was a third. Was there really a third Sometimes They Come Back movie? That's what we're here to discuss today. I am once again joined by my partners in King Crime, one and only Matthew Goudreau. Matt, how are you doing, sir? Adam, I think this is what actors refer to when they talk about contractual obligations. (laughs) And... My friend since high school, my best friend in the whole wide world, <laughs> the one who I dragged on this journey, the one and only Adam Bunch. Adam, how are you, sir? Stuck frozen in the snow and unable to move to get out of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, is it funny you s- to develop frostbite while watching a movie? <laughs> <laughs> I gotta say, if it wasn't for the fact Adam Grossman's back, he was the one who directed last week's movie, he's a writer on this. If it wasn't for that fact, I would think this thing had no connective tissue whatsoever. Matt, what were you expecting when you sat down to watch this one? The, the Great White Unknown, I think, is my best mindset going into this, because I was not aware that this thing existed until put it on the schedule. And I looked at the poster. I'm like, this looks like the kind of trash that I actively go out and seek. Because I love bad horror movies, and Lord knows I've had to watch my fair share in doing this journey with you. And nothing made me laugh more than hell is finally frozen over as the tagline. I'm pretty sure, like I said on the last show, Jack Frost, one or two, used that same tagline. And I confirmed it is said in the trailer for the very first movie. Would I rather be watching Jack Frost than sometimes they come back? No, I promise you this is the last time, which is what this should have been called. We will divulge very shortly. Adam, 
somehow, some way, you were on the same wavelength as me last week, where you kind of enjoyed the cheesy horridness of last week. Hell, all three of us gave it a six, which is scary in its own right. But you of the I'm not too familiar with the King Realm, you sat down to watch this. Were you expecting anything as fun as last week? What were you actually expecting when you sat down to watch? Sometimes they come back for more. I wasn't expecting anything but crap. But crap can sometimes be delightful, as we enjoyed the cheesiness of it last week. So while I had zero expectations whatsoever, I didn't necessarily mean to go in with a bad mindset, because I enjoy it. Sometimes they come back again more than sometimes they come back. So I think I got that right, because these titles already have me fucking confused more than the upcoming Pirates of the Caribbean series we're going to be talking about, <laughs> especially when I put this movie on and it said three. But you know what? Schlocky, cheesy goodness can sometimes be a nice little palate cleanser. So I was willing to be defrosted from the frozen poster that lingered before me while I was looking into this movie. And let's talk about, not necessarily behind the scenes people, because like I said, with the exception of Adam Grossman, there's no one here really worth talking about. But there's a couple stars of this that I think are worth mentioning. Adam, you and I grew up when a show called Murphy Brown was on. Absolutely. And so the makers of this once again decided to scrape that TV star barrel because we have Faith Ford here. And I have to say, as a young teenager, I had a pretty big crush on this woman, and I was kind of surprised to see her in a movie that came out about a year after that show was off the air. <laughs> Ditto. If there was one name that I recognized, I'm like, Faith Ford, Faith That's Corky from Murphy Brown. You know, and I like that show enough. But I, I think if there was a highlight for me, and yeah, definitely be a teenage crush, it was her. Matt, were you familiar with this woman at all? No, my familiarity with this movie only extends to the title being similar to the previous two movies. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, let's talk about the other star of this movie then, Clayton Romer. Now, not a name that rolls off the tongue, but this guy was another staple of my childhood. As he was in a movie I used to watch a lot, a little movie by the name of Just One of the Guys. Oh, wow. It's basically a teenage tootsie is what that turned out to be, highlighted by a final tit shot that I cannot recommend enough. Perfect. Right up there with Fast Times and, at Ridgemont High in the way of 80s classic titty shots. Yep, yep, yep. Absolutely. And this gentleman played kind of a love interest of this girl who's moonlighting as a guy. And I hadn't really seen him in too much sense. So when I saw him, I mean, he has a very recognizable face. I think they're kind of going for, a, well, we'll talk about the thing, but there's definitely a lot of thing flashbacks here. But those are literally, guys, the only two <laughs> names I recognized in this cast. Although I, I take that back. The guy who played the one who has the pentagram on his forehead, or as they say it here, pentagroll. Why, I have no idea. That guy I recognize from two episodes of Buffy. He played Whistler in a series of episodes where Angel's being shown Buffy and what his mission is. But literally, guys, that's all I recognize from this cast, and literally there's no other real behind-the-scenes stories here. You guys want to dive into this plot? Sure, let's dive into <laughs> this the thing. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wait yeah, me and Matt already covered this a couple years ago. Yeah, this plot the goddamn puddle. <laughs> How much did that do? Dude, it, it's actually much more complicated than I was expecting. There are some twists in this that I was like, okay, what did that mean? Okay, I had to rewind this a few times to get it. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if I had to rewind this thing at any point, I might not have been making this show today. <laughs> I'd rather go stand out in the snow than have to rewatch this. We have a cold open. Oh, for fuck's sake. It. <laughs> uh, that's as good as this is gonna get 
very cold looking base a fallen american flag and a jacket with glasses blowing away this has kind of like this alien 3 feel like we're, we're having a few of the credits with the scenes kind of going by and then a credit then a couple scenes and a credit small hints of action as the credits are going by here what do you guys think of the open here i felt like it was a way to do this as slow as possible to ensure that they can hit the minimum runtime required for this to be considered a motion picture <laughs> and this hit an hour 34 we're not too low here we're hearing a go ahead low is the temperature outside and this arctic setting and i will give the movie a compliment and maybe want to cuddle up in a blanket like, oh, i yeah. felt cold watching yeah, this movie which i guess makes sense because there's no warmth to be had because typically you associate enjoyment with warmth yeah, I mean, they definitely have a big wind machine going here, don't they? Well, that's all they could, <laughs> afford. All they could afford was a wind machine. <laughs> <laughs> We're hearing a broken signal as a body moves against a window, and Captain Cage wakes up. As I mentioned before, this guy's played by Clayton Wormer. We cut the shots of a mountainside as a helicopter containing Chase Masterson and Clayton Romer. Now, Matt, you had to recognize Chase Masterson, yeah, right? Deep Space Nine. Yeah, big part of Deep Space Nine. They're flying by, and we're hearing six soldiers at Erebus. Because if we want to sound important, we have to make up words like Erebus. As the director has been identified as the shooter and killer of at least one soldier, and I'm already confused. Uh, They're trying to go out of their way to paint the broadest of picture to get you to care. Secret government facility, captain went crazy, most likely due to cabin fever, and we need to go in on a rescue mission. That is the template for, I'm pretty sure Cannon made a whole subset of movies with that exact same plot. (laughs) Basically, Resident Evil, if it took place in John Carpenter's The Thing, where it swapped out a mansion for the secret sub-base. It was not what I was expecting. Watching that first movie... And this is the spawn that we get as a result. You clearly had to have some book of spells to conjure this up. Oh, there's some connective tissue. We'll get to it. What, what I'm struck by, because I'm, I'm paying attention. I'm, I'm listening. I got closed captioning on, which is amazing, because the last film I didn't even have that as an option. But they're keeping all the terms so vague that you can tell they did not get clearance by any military agency to use anything (laughs) official, including patches and decor that normally adorn these kind of half-ass uniforms that they got from military surplus that don't make sense. But it's so vague, I'm just, oy vey. I'm just, wow. They run into some nasty weather and then drop right into a terribly rendered fog effect. And the score here is great. And when I say great, I mean terrible. As I could swear I heard hints of the first Die Hard score within it as they're dropping in. They find Major Frank. He's dead. And then we see our two main characters here, Jennifer and Sam, played by Ford and Roma, respectfully. They look and find mining engineer John laying down and frozen. He bleeds. And three films in, we know what this means, guys, right? It's time for a flashback. Except not much here, except a shovel digging while burying a corpse that we're going to get more of here and some weird stares. But, man, I got to say, we really ripped on those flashbacks last week. But here, what the fuck is going on? I had to rewind. Again, this is where we had to rewind is where these goddamn flashbacks came in because I wasn't sure exactly what was going on, who was doing what. These flashbacks, the least you could say about last week and the week before, at least those made sense. Yeah, they're they're here to just inflate this runtime. Yeah, because the majority of them don't service the story and to get to the end. They don't even service confusing us as a red herring. They're just there. They don't play a role in where this film concludes at. It's so confusing as to as to what's going on with them. 
And that's what I mean by overcomplicated, is it's just too complicated. We transition with what looks like the same styrofoam that I use to do my Christmas houses that is supposed to be the snow with some fog machine that somebody got from Party City to obscure the front of it. I mean, that's what this looks like is they're shooting this film. You could tell they were very resourceful because they had to do the most with one set <laughs> for 80% of this movie. They didn't find Stabansky, and then we hear that a transport probably won't come for a while due to the inability to send for help. We find that Stepanski likes a little too much sugar in his coffee as he talks about Whitaker ordering level six, which is the deepest level of the mine, and it was shut off because of gases. But Schilling, we'll talk a lot about him, he's down there anyway, reporting back that he found something, although he refuses to tell anyone what it is. They're told that he just walked out with a huge knife in his hand and Bings, who was trying to find Whitaker. I mean, this is just, we're already just convoluting everything here. I kept wanting to hit the pause button on my remote so I could look at the in-game instructions and look up the files that you find to explain the plot. Because it's composed like one of those point-and-click early survival horror games <laughs> where they dump all the information... And you have to take it at face value because they don't really explain shit unless you read it line by line. And it just makes so much of the plotting of this movie really laborious because as a mystery, you don't care. And these characters are about as stock as the uniforms they are wearing. Say what you want about last week. Say what you want about Michael Gross. Say what you want about Hillary Swank. We had fun last week. And trying to unravel this as a mystery is not making me have any bit of fun. No, I feel like I'm reading a Choose Your Own Adventure book, and it said turn to page 27, and I accidentally turned to page 31, where it did not continue where it told me to go. Mass Reverse of the Resident Evil is kind of dead on, but you know what happens there? Every now and then, I get a CG shot that lets me know where I am in the building. I have no idea why I go from, I'm assuming the director's closet, to some high-tech-looking facility, to outside, to a, to a cabin, to fucking a tent. There is no continuity in where anybody is throughout this movie, and it just heightens the lack of awareness and convolutedness to where I feel is going on. And if it made it where there was some enjoyment as to feeling awkward or feeling scared or feeling enjoyed or titillated or just pulpy fun, great, but this is not that kind of film. They seriously needed a map screen to come up every five minutes so you could yes. understand the geography of where everything is. <laughs> they find cameras as well as some leftover fumes. And then they see that they're on level four and then spot somebody walking through the corridor. So they follow him until they lose him in the mines. This is my favorite, one of my favorite cliches of we're going to follow this person that we have never seen before. <laughs> <laughs> we see that the fumes are bothering Callie, but not Sam. Hmm. I wonder if this comes back, guys. The backup generator, it kicks in as somebody's black eyes open up as Sam lies and tells Shabansky that he didn't see anything. Callie, meanwhile, she tells Sam that Baines is gone, and she started thinking that maybe someone down here isn't really telling the truth. Yeah, these guys so suck at hide-and-seek with these bodies. <laughs> it's really bad. Speaking of bad, we're seeing Sam have visions of Egyptian dancers. Um, why, did we, why are there gypsies suddenly in this movie? <sighs> this takes flashbacks, and it just... I mean, why? Just why? And this literally feels like, okay, let me just get into my theory of how this started. Oh, God. Well, you got to snort some Coke before you do that? <laughs> <laughs> 
Adam Grossman, who I said is a screenwriter of this, and he was a director of last week's film, I think he wanted to make this from the beginning. I think this was a separate script that they just kind of wove. And, and, and it shows in the fact that this movie has about three names attached to it. We have sometimes they come back three, sometimes they come back for more, and Frozen. I think Adam Grossman wanted to make Frozen. And in order to get funding for that, he had to attach the, I guess you say franchise, the series that he's already made, to it. And thus, we have Sometimes They Come Back 3. And this was not intended to be a Sometimes They Come Back movie. I believe this was intended to be an original script. And this is what we get. So you're saying that he wanted to make Frozen, but couldn't let it go. Oh. <laughs> I think your theory is correct, though, because I have to remember, this is the days of direct-to-video horror sequels. That mm-hmm. was the exact same template. Basically, all of the Hellraiser sequels suffered. Yes. Where they took spec scripts and just inserted Hellraiser elements to connect it. So I don't think your idea is that far off, especially because if King had no association with the second one, he was not even on the same planet when it came to this movie. It, it was like well, he might as well have been Poochie from The Simpsons. Well, I will say there are elements here. I should say one element. The one element taken from that story in this is the book that they used to conjure these demons up. That's the exact book he used in his story. In the second movie, right? Well, in the second movie, but in the original story. And plus, again, we have connective tissue to the other movies, which I can't wait till we get to that. (laughs) But yeah, so you're right. But at the same time, what's weird about this is six years before this, King had sued, and we'll get to it, the makers of The Lawnmower Man, because... His name was on that project, and did it have nothing to do with his original short story? I don't know if it's trying to get blood from a stone, if you're suing the makers of this movie for money, or if he just didn't give a shit. He was rolling in dough by that time. Hell, he was about ready to go through his own crisis a year later. But we, I've never heard anything. And, and any time I can hear King talk about what he thought of the movies, I will always bring it up. But there's nothing about that here, and I just don't think he gave a shit. Well, it's not like there was this giant pool of money that he could have sued the makers of this movie for. (laughs) Yeah, and that's what I said. It's like pulling blood from a stone. You're not going to get it. So they see that level five was accessed, which makes them head that way. Callie is taken out. Boy, that didn't take long. I honestly thought she was going to last longer. (laughs) I did too. That that kind of blew me away. Yeah. The problem (laughs) is only having four principal characters. It's either you have to kill them off quickly or you stretch it out to where you're waiting every 20 minutes for someone to get offed. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sam takes her back to base, and Savansky asks if now would be a good time to call for help. But it's here where we see that the radio, oh boy, this is shocking, guys, was taken out in the mayhem. Really? I didn't see this coming from the thing. (laughs) For the record, it does say that in the Necronomicon that they find later. Uh You know, you have to sever lines of communication. Uh, The the raising demons for dummies that they find? (laughs) Basically, yeah, I I think this one's literally the second edition. (laughs) (laughs) the body of robert reynolds is thrown through a window into the base and jennifer gets to work on him until she brings him back and sam says when he does come back he's going to wish he'd remain frozen this guy's an uplifting sword isn't he he's just got to remember only sometimes they come back though 
Jennifer tells Sam that he's a good man, and Callie is lucky to have him for a partner. And what we have here, gents, is exactly what we had in the thing. So, an inability to trust anyone, although this one is a tad more boring. So that's Go the ahead. flimsiest way to try to make it seem like these two characters have a history. They want them to be Mulder and Scully so bad. This yes. might as well be a deleted X-Files episode. Like, nothing this guy's done since he showed up on base that has helped them really in any way or endear him to anybody, but suddenly she trusts him and starts to fall. Like, why are they trying to bring any sort of romance or bring these two together other than he has a penis, she has a vagina, so they must hook up by the end of this film? Well, they gotta put the cum and sometimes they come back. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. This was the one time I felt, I'll go ahead and say, warmth between these two. This is the one time where we're trying to endure these two together because we need, we're going to need to learn by the end of this movie, we're going to need to trust the idea that these two fell in love somehow. Uh, <sighs> it's, just, it's just so funny. But you bring up X-Files, Matt. I, I know Matt's seen more episodes than Adam. Matt, did you ever see the one called Ice where it was kind of the thing ripoff that they did from the first season? Barely. Uh, my, my recollection of the X-Files is nowhere near as good as, say, Buffy. That'd be definitely a show I'd want to cover at some point, though. Oh, God, yeah. But that episode is pretty much the thing, which is actually a better version of this, quite honestly. There's a dog involved in that one as well. It's a marvelous watch. And I think that's kind of what they were going for here. I mean, this is 1998. This is right in the midst of X-Files mania. The company was still on the show. It was the fourth season, which was what a lot of people call the peak of the show. And I think that's exactly what they were going for. So Bobby wakes up, not in a good mood, and Sam tells Sabansky that he's going with him down the mine to find Schilling. It's going to be dangerous down there. Here, take this. You have equipped a handgun. Please press <laughs> B to continue. <laughs> they can't remember what weapons they have on any given scene, because we go from rifles, which they're wearing fucking mittens on, so they can't even pull the, <laughs> get, get a finger through the trigger guard if they wanted, <laughs> to handguns, to back and forth. Jesus, fuck. We see Sam as he hears a demon voice say, Hello, little brother. Have you seen Mary? And this causes him to go after this. Setting this up, boys. He walks in and sees that Sabansky is right there with a gun. And Sabansky points out the disposal unit, which is the only way in. Jennifer, meanwhile, thinks that the gas affected Sam and offers him something to sleep, which he completely turns down and is smarmy as he says that Schilling must have inhaled the gas, which is why he's dead. Bobby starts saying that they're all screwed as Sam finds that Callie is now missing. Then we cut to more visions of someone over a fire. We're then getting, get this, connective tissue to the previous films. I cannot believe this. This didn't feel injected in, did it? A pentagram is on a map, and we're seeing that the lines lead to Jim Norman and John Porter. Yes, they even mentioned Michael Gross here. Wow. See, guys, all of this matters. I'm blown away, flabbergasted, and impressed that they decided they were going to tie this to the other two films in this manner. I loved it. And I love that. What does Maine have to do with any of it? Well, yeah, what does Maine have to do well, with it? It's Stephen King. Yep. Yeah. Well, I know, but that's them saying yeah, that, it. You know, the characters are saying it. That's for you. That right there, that nod, that is uh-huh. for you. Exactly. I almost stood up and applauded because I, no, I had no idea that this had any, forget connective tissue, tendons associated with the other two movies. But to get that specific, to mention the character from the sequel, that was even more detached from the first is, I don't know whose idea that was, but job well done for trying to make yourself seem more important than you actually are. 
We then see Sam pick up a picture of the guy he's having visions of, and Jennifer's like, yep, that's Schilling. Oh, boy. Mm. This is when Sam lets loose some news that Schilling is actually his half-brother and that they have the same father who he has never met. Here we go, boys. We're setting this mystery in motion, aren't we? Now he knows who Schilling is. (laughs) Sister. He says that they were in the war together, and of course, there are going to be questions like, okay, was it the Iraqi war? Is Mary actually an Iraqi woman? Oh, no. We're going to find out later that this was a much different war, which we'll get to. (gasps) He says he met a nurse named Mary, and that he ended up marrying her. We then hear that Schilling actually took her from him, and that he couldn't stop him. Boy, oh boy. So this character, no Schilling, who's in this base, we came to rescue, because he stole his wife from him. As we see in these visions, boys, what do you think of this plot detail? Uh, they should have called this movie "As the Snow Falls." With <laughs> this shit's a goddamn soap opera at this point, <laughs> it, and it's also it's done like in the way that professional wrestling does love triangles, where they just they just pull that out of nowhere. You got one guy that's super jealous and goes off the deep end. I enjoy it in its lunacy. If you're asking me, does this make for quality entertainment? I left those notions. At the words direct to video. Well, get used to those words because we're going <laughs> to see them a few more times before we get through the night shift. He tells Jennifer that he doesn't deserve her pity and that Schilling can't want anything good from them if he's back. And why the fuck can these guys not pronounce pentagram? Yeah. Like, why is it pentacle? Yeah, they say it like three or four times. Yeah, I don't know if this is, you know, like when, when you watch Canadian productions, there's certain words they just can't. Yeah. But yeah, if, if none of them can pronounce it, then why do you have it in the script in the first place? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's like it's a trademarked word that they're trying to find a way around somehow, and it's it's just every time they fucking do it, it's ah, no. Baines attacks Sam, but Jennifer kills him. Sabansky, meanwhile, he brings Sam a camera so that, in his words, he can see what he's going to nuke before he nukes it. He turns on the remote, and here's an effective filmmaker technique. Watch a camera go through tunnels. Because this director literally was editing in his closet, decided to go ahead and probably put a fucking camera on an RC truck <laughs> and do this just to, oh my God. Which would fit in with earlier in this Night Shift retrospective. <laughs> See, it's all connected. <laughs> if this truck got suddenly fucking sentient, I, it, yes, this movie would take a turn. It would not, they would make me happy. Well, there does come a point you want to put your fast-forward button on maximum overdrive because it starts to drag at this point. The camera gets stuck, and Sam tells Sabansky to just drop it as the camera comes back, and Sabansky says that they lost a headlight. We get a poltergeist reference as Sabansky tells Carol Ann to follow the light. I did kind of like that. I thought that was kind of cute. That's how I took it, too. and it It made me chuckle. And it moves right to something that looks like a fire-driven altar surrounded by a, quote, Pentacle again. My God, speaking of wrestling, I half expected like Undertaker and the <laughs> freaking Ministry of Darkness to show up. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to put someone on the cross and put it up at the top of the arena. Yeah, thought of that too. We then see a shot of Schilling holding Callie hostage and him smiling over her with black eyes. Jennifer, meanwhile, she begs him to not leave them as she swears in her best Akbar impression that it's a trap. And Sam agrees to just let them come to them. A zombie comes out and says that they're here to help. But Jennifer and Sam, they gun him down, and Jennifer proclaims that they need to get that book. Because nothing makes me think of, yep, that makes sense, than the undead being killed by a 
hail of bullets. <laughs> and it happens more than once. Well, Romero did it, to be fair. Mm. But they're, these are the undid. <laughs> <laughs> Callie has come back as a zombie, and Sam tells Sabansky that he's sick of his excuses as he shakes him. And then, in another twist to this <sighs> plot, Sabansky's hat falls off, and he reveals a pentacle on his head. I will say, this surprised me. Because yeah? I thought he was going to have horns. Oh, I thought wow. he was going to look like Jason Lee in fucking Dogma. And I thought that beret was going to come off and show that he was hiding fucking horns under there. I would have kind of preferred that reveal, though, because after insulting his dad, Sabansky gets a few bullets in the head and Sam takes him out for a little fresh air. This voice that he puts on after <laughs> this hat falls off is kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Sam then tells Jennifer that he doesn't even know who he is as they find that Bane's body was dragged. But they find the book, and Jennifer finds out that if a demon can complete a circle of eight, they can raise the devil himself. Which means... So, boys, we're not dealing with demons here. We're dealing with the actual fucking devil. Yes, but that also means that Captain Hero that fucking showed up here, all he had to do for this to not work is not come to the base. Yes. If they just didn't show up, and apparently he knows the rules because of fucking history, if he had just not shown up, he would not have given them the number they needed. This is where you can really start to feel the influence of another story that specifically references Satan, not necessarily yeah. stock devils. So am I enjoying this? Yes, because I wanted to see with this budget what kind of terrible costuming they would have if the devil actually showed up. I was not expecting Tim Curry from Legend. I was expecting <laughs> something that you could find at your local uh, haunted house. Sam asks Jennifer to trust him and not be afraid of him. She says that she's not afraid of him, and to prove this, she kisses him. Because, because of course she does. Jesus Christ. Worst decision in a fucking Frozen movie since Elsa. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> Sam concludes that the heart is key, and if they can stab these demons in the heart, they can kill them. The demons, they come through as Sam and Jennifer, they make their way out of the base. They get separated. Sam makes his way through a red-lit part of the base, dives down, and finds himself right in the middle of a Kali Ma ritual. A reference for later on in the year. Done about as well. <laughs> hey! At least this one's not uh, culturally insensitive. He talks to Schilling, and they talk about Mary as we cut to another flashback. Oh. This of Mary asking Sam why as she slaps him. This flashback is weird, as I had to rewind again just to make sure this wasn't Faith Ford who was slapping him. That's who I thought it was, too. I thought they were doing yeah. that thing where you have the actress play his wife in a different time, and that's what uh -huh. I it was, which... You thought they were doing Dracula? <laughs> to go back to me being a 13-year-old boy made me happy when I got boobs showing up again on screen. Yeah. But it wasn't her. No, it wasn't Faith Forwards, unfortunately. Yeah. It said Faith Forward, but for me, it's more like stays down. <laughs> uh, the transitions in this movie, boys, just aren't the best. Don't worry. That's why we're making up for it on the airwaves. <laughs> <laughs> we find out that he worshipped Sam for a thousand years. He followed him found his victims, and the one time he felt for another person, Schilling tortured her to death. So here we go, boys. This is a reveal I put on par with the reveal of Wolverine and Sabretooth in that these two have been fighting alongside for thousands of years. They're basically, you know, the Archangel and St. <laughs> Peter. All I can say is, wow, this yep. is not what I was expecting when I put in my 2B subscription. <laughs> 
Which Adam, what about you? You have the person kind of like last week. You're, you're kind of unexpectedly digging this series. What are you thinking at this point? That I, I like. I have no idea how they went this way, and I'm all the explanation is to the why has been sucked out of this film, flash frozen and thrown out a fucking window. Wait, you did this for a thousand years, but now you have a problem with it, but you only turned your back a hundred years ago, but you know the rules, but you show it. Oh my God. And there's so much of this ending where somebody's going to stand there and have like a three minute dialogue with black contacts in under a red light filmed in the same director's closet. It's just, Holy shit. <laughs> Wait until you see Lance Hendrickson on strings. That's all the tease I will give you for now. Is that the lead scene from uh, Alien vs. Predator? <laughs> <laughs> no. No, it's coming up in a future movie. Sam doesn't believe that they were brought here for the purpose of bringing Satan back, and he says that he's just sick of it all. <laughs> Schilling bites down on Jennifer's fingers before a fight breaks out. Sam stabs Sabansky in the heart. Yes, he's still roaming around. As he's about to complete the ritual, though, Jennifer proclaims that she's not afraid of him. And, in fact, she loves him. Oh, boy. Oh, my God. <laughs> I can feel the brain cells leaving my box. <laughs> you know that scene in Who Framed Roger Rabbit in the climax when they laugh to death? And you see the souls leaving their bodies. That's, that's yes. what was happening to my brain waves as I was watching this garbage. And I was not in any hurry to have them come back. No, I'm not the weasel who's trying to climb back into the body. I'm happily going away. Oh, I would jump into that pile of dip like I was Scrooge McDuck in a pile of money. Sam struggles, but in the end, he tells Schilling, first name Carl, goodbye. I really do Schwarzenegger. Another reveal here. So Schilling proclaims that if he's going to hell, Sam's coming with him. But Sam leaves with Jennifer, and a final fight breaks out. Steel bars do nothing to him. And as Carl makes his way to Jennifer, Sam puts an axe through his chest, lifts him to the ceiling, and then throws him, which causes him to bleed out his mouth. Kind of a crazy way to kill your main villain. Yes, well, speaking of finishing video games, I thought I was waiting for the Mortal Kombat announcer to yell, finish him. They set the dynamite as they jump out of the base, and Carl goes up in an explosion of flame. But, like Ben Kenobi, here's Mary all of a sudden showing up in a beam of snowy light right before she disappears. And Sam proclaims his love for Jennifer as he closes her hands over the ring and credits roll on a way too plot-driven. Sometimes they come back for more. Would you guys see this climax, boys? I couldn't climax if I wanted to at this point. That's <laughs> how bad it is. I'm climaxing when the credits start because I know I'm done. I'm going to watch this. <laughs> Scale of 1 to 10, what do we give whatever the hell we decide to call this movie in the title of this podcast? <laughs> Adam, you go ahead and go, sir. It's amazing how last week's film can be such good, I don't want to say good, but enjoyable, schlocky horror fun, and this one could have none of that rich goodness. There wasn't even a reason for this one to be rated R. They showed boobs three times, and other than that, I mean, if you're going to go there, go there. The plot is not fucking sensical, which could be fun if you're going to lean into it and have just 
blood, boob, gore fest. You have to go there if you're going to do it for this kind of film. And they don't. It's amazing that by holding back, quote unquote, they hurt this film. The script is ridiculous. The acting is abysmal. The set, quote unquote, that they filmed in some dude's house that doesn't align up with one another is ridiculous to try to go through. And much like them trying to traverse their way from the cabin in the snow to the maze to everywhere else, I'm confused going through this film. I will never put this in again. It's, oh, god damn. I will give it credit for one thing, that it actually mentioned and tied into those other two films, blew me away, popped me for a moment, and if it was more of a gore fest into that, it could be enjoyable. Not as good as last week, but it would be on par with the original. As it stands, wow. It's an embarrassment. Given by the fact that it doesn't even know what to call itself, I don't know what to call this film, other than just crap. I'm going to give it a two for two reasons. Right tit and left tit. And other than that, leave this thing alone. Ah, say what you really mean. All right. Goudreau, how angry were you watching Sometimes They Come Back for More? Anger is not the right word because for the 10 years you and I have known each other and we've podcasted, the unthinkable finally happened. You showed me a movie that rendered me speechless. I just sat there in silence as the credits rolled. And part of this was because it was one in the morning and I was tired, borderline comatose. But I think that's because I had no brain cells left to contemplate what I had just seen. I get this was made under the great white of unknown circumstances. Look at the titles. Hell, there's more titles than Adam gave points to this movie. So after two movies that I enjoyed but saw some merit to, this is one that I just sat there in amazement. I feel like I, I looked like, to use another allegory, this is to me, like, when this was done, I looked like how you would imagine Schwarzenegger looks at the end of Total Recall if you believe that it all took place in his head, where he's just comatose and most likely brain dead. That's about the quality I felt like the writing deserves in this movie. It is one of the most incompetent things I think we have ever watched. I don't want to speak to you guys, but for me, this is not one of the worst things as far as making me angry or one of those times to where I thought, well, only if they had a better director or better material. You could have given this shit to peak John Carpenter, speaking of the thing, and we would have rolled up a joint because he says, I have no idea what to do with this. And I have no idea what to score this. So I'm going to go the same score as Adam, but not for right tit and left tit. I'm going because that's the number of eyes that I had on my face to process what I had watched. So two on ten for me as well. But please, if you're curious about watching this, give it a shot because you will probably enjoy yourself on some baseline level. And I don't think it's going to give you hypothermia, but be aware because you'll have frostbite of your brain because you'll feel numb after a certain point. All right, so we have two twos. Am I going to throw the Catwoman curveball? I don't know. No, I'm not even going to tease that. This movie's terrible. There's a thing about this series that is so crazy to me in that when you take a King property from Night Shift, and you have a halfway decent movie. Then you have a, okay, fun but stupid movie. Then you have a movie like this where it just kind of takes the material, it takes one or two elements of it, and you inject it into your own script, and this is what you come up with. If you're not a good writer, sometimes that can work, but if you're not a good writer and you can't 
get a budget or hold a plot together, this is what you get. And again, I just cannot believe riding the wave of Murphy Brown, <laughs> Faith Flora would sign on to this. She must have done it as a favor because I don't know how that woman can do a movie like this. It's nonsensical. It's pretty bad. There's like one or two things to laugh at in this. I got a kick out of seeing Sabansky kind of make the heel turn, I guess you can say. That was fun. But no, there's way more fun to be had last week than there is this week. I thought maybe seeing them try to do the thing in this environment could work. But 20 minutes in, I was like, okay, this did not go the way I was hoping. So I want to go one up than you guys. I'm not going to give it a two. I'll go three. I I think there are a couple things here you can kind of grasp onto if you like those kind of bad X-Files episodes this kind of reminded me of. But really, even if you're curious about this, just kind of stay away because it's not worth an hour and a half of your time. That being said, I'm going to give these two boys a break from King for a bit. We're going to come back to King in a couple months, but it's not going to be for Night Shift. We'll discuss that in the future. But Matt, how would you, sir, like to reveal the next series that we're doing? Because I know this is something very near and dear to you. Yes, it is. We're going from Stephen King to John Grisham. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) We're doing the Pirates of the Caribbean movies after numerous attempts of me advocating for it in some capacity over the years. We're finally going to do it, largely because the 20-year anniversary is coming up with the first one. And... It'll give Garrett a chance to catch his breath after doing all these recaps and pulling what hair he has out, trying to explain these movies. I'll be taking the reins on these, and we all come at it from different perspectives, so it'll be something that I think is going to make for very good discussions. Very good discussions, and I know I have a couple interview shows coming up, and we have some cool things to reveal. Yes, the Patreon is being set in motion, and we're, trust me, everybody, we're going to make this well worth your money. We're working really hard to make sure that happens, and God, the ideas are, last night we were up, we're all up to like 10 o'clock, my time, going over ideas, and God, we're just, we're really excited to reveal all that. That'll all come in the near future, and then after Pirates, I'm not going to reveal that series, but man, there's a series after Pirates that is so near and dear to me, I cannot wait to review it, so it's really, really good stuff coming up. Boys, thank you for taking this king-sized journey with me. (laughs) I will begin and end this with a pun. Always fun. I mean, even as I'm watching these movies, I watch it go by. I'm like, okay, what is Matt thinking about this? What's Adam thinking about this? That's kind of the excitement of doing this series. The good news is we only have four stories left in this book. But the bad news is one of those stories has 11 fucking movies. (laughs) All right. But until next week, Oh, Matt, do you also want to reveal that we're continuing Shyamalan as well? Yeah, because we don't have a choice. And I'm very curious to see how he takes a book that's very good and shits on it like he did with Avatar The Last Airbender. <laughs> it's actually coming <laughs> I out? Have my, wow. Yeah, it's coming out February 2nd. Might be a little later than what we were expecting, but I'll have that podcast up within a week or so when that movie comes out. But yeah, we are bringing Mike and Ari back, and we are eventually going to get to Knock at the Cabin, which I've seen a couple trailers for, and I gotta say, it doesn't look bad. But no M. Night Shyamalan movie looks bad in the trailers, so... (laughs) I cannot believe we're coming back to Shyamalan after a year. That's crazy to me. Yeah, I thought the breakup would take longer. And I'm very disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, M Night Shyamalan, Pirates of the Caribbean, Johnny Depp. What else can you ask for, boys? We're we're working hard for you. But until next week, when we get to Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, you always wanted to be like your brother, didn't you, Jimmy? You always wanted to podcast. Thank you, gentlemen. Okay, guys, let's sit down. Yeah.
Chip, take a seat. What's that, an order? No, it's a suggestion. You can take a seat or you can go talk to Coach about it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. Sometimes the hardest part is admitting to yourself that something exists which makes you frightened. Join us next week for an entirely new review. Real glad to be here, sir. And if you'd like to hear the boys talk about the film adaptations of Carrie and The Shining, please head over to BingeMedia.net and click the Aftertaste tab. Don't you know? Your buddies are back. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. You want to give that to me? Oh, I'd love to give it to you. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Now on, we all stay together. Edited by Garrett. Mind giving me a hand? Voiceovers by Adam. But you gotta live with me and I gotta live with you, so let's try and enjoy it, okay? The Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is for review and discussion and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. Come on, Mr. Norman. We're gonna break for dinner. We'll get back at it later. And this is what we get. So you're saying that he wanted to make Frozen but couldn't let it go. Oh. <laughs> and and you're, you're, I think your plot is... Drop the mic, Matt. Let's just turn this podcast off. We're I done. Think your, I think your theory is correct, though. <laughs> But at the same time, what's weird about this is seven years before this. No, actually, it was six. Six years before this. <laughs> Till next week, when we get to Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl. You always wanted to be a po- uh, I'm sorry. Where was my quote? Movie killed your brain cells, too. <laughs> <laughs> you always wanted to be like your brother, didn't you, Jimmy?